Good morning. We'll be in a minute reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, to chapter 6, verse 9. Um, we have been praying for the Romaine family, uh, a, a foundation called Hunt of a Lifetime gave uh, Ian Romaine this uh, hunting experience uh, where they were purchased the plane tickets for the whole family to fly down to Baton Rouge. And then from there, they drove them up to Mississippi to some place called, uh, I think, Magnolia Ranch or something like that. I'm not sure where that's located. Uh, but he had the opportunity to, um, to hunt a specific type of uh, deer or an uh, antelope or something, something, an animal with four legs and with, had long antlers. And uh, so uh, uh, the requirements were that he had to, he had to pull the trigger. That's, that's the thing. So his, his dad was able to set the, the rifle up and get everything ready. And sure enough, that, that animal walked in front of the, uh, the rifle, and he was able to pull the trigger, and he got him. And uh, so the, this foundation uh, packaged the meat up and everything and shipped it to North Carolina, and they were able to go back. Uh, but um, while he was there, he started to to really deteriorate and uh, kind of lost a lot of uh, strength and um, mobility and um, kept on going down, down, down. And uh, Saturday morning, uh, he passed away. And uh, so, Lord willing, they'll be having the viewing this uh, Friday. And then on Saturday, they'll be having the funeral. Uh, please continue to pray for the Romains, for Jonathan, for, for Hannah. Uh, they have two daughters, Adeline and Mia. Uh, so uh, pray for them. Uh, it's a, a tough, tough road to go through, and uh, the, the God of all comfort will comfort them uh, even, even now. We're in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. This is the Word of the Lord. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives, as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for he, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, 
and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you in that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will rendered service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing which one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them, and give them uh, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this text. I pray now that your spirit would work in our lives uh, to conform us to the image of your Son. Father, we see these different relationships. In each of them, we are to look to Christ. And I pray that uh, as we look at these different situations, we can see areas in our own life where maybe we're not looking to Christ and that uh, we'll be transformed for your honor and glory. Father, if there's someone here that's not saved, I pray that the Spirit would convict them of their sin, show them their need of a Savior, and that they'll put their faith today in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. A lot of uh, people, especially here in the States, really uh, live in in these two chapters here. Uh, they're really interested in how and knowing what type of marriage they're supposed to have. Uh, and, and really, in kind of looking at what type of marriage they're supposed to have, they're really kind of asking, what rights do I have? And what obligations do I have towards the other person? They want to know how to have great kids. Uh, they want to know biblically if they have to obey their parents. What responsibilities do they have with their kids? They want to know what type of boss they should be, what type of employee, what rights do they have as an employee? How are they supposed to be behaving while at the workplace? And most Americans like this pragmatic side uh, of Christianity, and they want to know answers to this. Unfortunately, their curiosity is not so much to be uh, answering how to obey but their curiosity is kind of know what do they have to do. Now, where we're at in this text, it's it's really important to note that uh, this is not the beginning of the letter. I know know that's super profound, and you're like, really? (laughs) We're not at the beginning. Uh, This is after Paul has developed a whole theology of God's plan and God's sovereignty in the lives of individuals way before the foundations of, of the world. God has, in in chapter 1, 2, and 3, has established a certain plan. And unless we understand that plan, 
we're going to really fight against what Paul presents in chapter 5 and chapter 6. We're going to say, I understand that this is applicable to all Christians, but my situation is unique. And therefore, I don't have to listen to this text. You, you don't understand. And you'll want to buck against it. You'll want to fight against it. And you'll say, it's for everyone else, but I have a very unique situation in my life where this excludes me from behaving in this way. Now, the only way to combat that is to accept chapters 1, 2, and 3. If you don't accept chapters 1, 2, and 3, if you don't understand God is having a plan that he has been redeeming, that he has been saving, that he has been adopting, he's been uh, creating a, a holy uh, group of individuals, adopted sons and daughters, if, if we don't understand that, we're going to really fight against this. Now, what we'll be looking at today is that we need to look at Christ to know how you are to have a proper relationship with others. We are to look at Christ so that we can know how to have a proper relationship with others. And we see that starting in verses 22 through 23, we are to look to Christ in our marriage. We're to look to Christ in our marriage. Now, uh, if you've ever read a book on homiletics, the, the art of developing sermons, or if you've taken a course in preaching, uh, the one thing that everybody seems to really highlight, uh, which they seem to always be in accord, accord with one another, is that you shouldn't combine two ideas into one sermon. Pick one thing or the other. They say, people can't handle two thoughts at the same time. Uh, they, they just can't handle that. that, that it's not my words, it's what preachers, uh, people that teach preachers say. And Paul just totally decides to disregard that advice altogether because he combines two thoughts here. He combines this idea of a marriage, and then he uses an illustration of Jesus and the church, and he intertwines them to the point that he calls this a great mystery. Now, we see that in verse 32, that this is a great mystery. Now, he's not talking about marriage being the great mystery, but rather Christ and the church. Now, this idea of mystery is not the first time that it appears in Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 9, he said, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, in, in Christ. Uh, this mystery, mystery that was presented, something that wasn't revealed before, but now is revealed. Ephesians chapter 3 and 3 and 4 says by, uh, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in brief, the, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. What's that mystery of Christ? The mystery of Christ is that uh, there's Jew and Gentile, they're in the body of Christ. That's something that wasn't in the Old Testament. It, that wasn't revealed at all. You've had marriage since uh, Genesis chapter 2. But there's a, a unique revelation in the progression of revelation that there's this mystery of Christ in the church over in uh, chapter 3, verse 9. And to bring to light uh, what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So this new administration, or you could call it another word, a dispensation, that has been hidden but now is revealed. And based on this revelation, there is supposed to be obedience to the revelation presented. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19 says, And pray on my behalf, 
that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. He's preaching and he's asking them, pray for me that I'll have boldness to preach this, uh, this mystery, something that wasn't known before and now is revealed. Now, as we're looking at this, let me just kind of mark off that uh, what we're dealing with in this text is a Christian marriage, a Christian marriage. And that's really important to, to really grasp. There are other passages that deal with situations where you have a, a saved individual and an unsaved individual. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, 1 uh, Peter chapter 3, uh, 1 through 7. You have scenarios, texts that address those types of different scenarios. Here, there is an assumption that both are saved. And based on these both being saved, they are uh, striving towards something, a, a specific goal in their life. Uh, to try to take this and apply it one for one in a scenario where you have an unsaved spouse, it's not going to work really well because you'll either have a, a, a wife that doesn't want to obey or you'll have a husband that will not be loving his wife as Christ loved the church. So just let me give that uh, clarification as we look at this. Now, in presenting this, we see that uh, Paul starts addressing the wives. And uh, he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands uh, as to the Lord. The, the idea is also presented in verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, uh, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands and everything. The word has an idea to be submissive. Uh, to be place themselves in a submissive uh, relationship, subordinate relationship. The verbal idea being communicated here is a present, uh, which is uh, an ongoing thing. It's not like, well, at the altar I was submissive for about 30 minutes and now I'm no longer. That, that's not how this works here. What it presents here is an ongoing placing themselves submissive in this relationship. Now, now notice that the text says, as to the Lord. The, the way that this is done is not presented as, if your husband deserves for you to be submissive, then you'll be submissive. It's not say, if, if he is this incredible person, if he is this awesome guy, then you're to be submissive. It doesn't give that. It just gives that they're supposed to, wives are supposed to be submissive. And it says unto the Lord. It reflects your worship to God, how you act daily. It does. It shows the condition of your heart, of how you act daily towards your husband. It shows whether you live what characterizes you as being submissive or not. And it says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is also the head of the church, being the Savior of the body. Now, this aspect of what Christ does, being the Savior, does not have a correspondence with any type of ministry that the husband does with the wife. Some have tried to say, well, the husband is a, a defender of the wife. But this word for Savior does not correspond with defending. It doesn't have that idea of defending. The idea of Savior in this context is that the person is lost, totally separate from God, 
and reconciliation was happened to bring them into a relationship with God. There's nothing that corresponds to the husband to do this. This is a ministry that Christ has done to the church. He himself has done this. Now it says, verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their uh, husbands in everything. In everything. Again, we're assuming we have a Christian relationship here. We have uh, individuals who are not unequally yoked. We have individuals who are seeking after the Lord. And in that situation, the wife is to be submissive to the husband. It, it presents itself in this way. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Now, as we move on, it doesn't say, well, if he has a certain IQ or if he's not annoying or anything like that. It doesn't say that. It presents it as he is uh, she is supposed to be submissive. Verse 25 now moves to the husband's and the husband's responsibility. Uh, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives. That love is an imperative. It's a command. And it has really nothing to do with feelings. It really doesn't. It, it, it's demonstrated over in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How is this walking in love? Ah, well, he answers it. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Well, that was pretty easy to do, right? I mean, because we were so lovable, right? I mean, we were just this wonderful little puppy, and he saw us, he goes, oh, that's so cute. No, chapter 2 tells us the condition in which we were in. And you were dead, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit, now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we, all, uh, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. How did he love us? Based on a feeling? No. Because we deserved it? No. He loved us. He decided to love us. And the same command is here, given to the husband. There's no qualifier. Just like for the wife, there's no qualifier. There's no qualifier for the husband. It says love. You don't understand her. I don't have to understand her. The, the example that's given is as Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? Well, while the church was dead in their trespasses of sin, he died for the church. That's quite an image, isn't it? And it says that he gave himself for her. To what extent are we to love the wife? Well, to the extent of death. Well, that's a bit dramatic. I mean, goodness, uh, can't we do something else? I mean, that's what's given here. How is the husband supposed to relate to the wife? It says in verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, uh, but that she would be holy and blameless. 
Now, it presents a certain specific ministry that Christ is doing in the church. It's saying that Christ is involved in sanctifying. That word uh, sanctifying has the idea of putting uh, something apart uh, for uh, making it compatible with holiness, uh, purifying something. It's to eliminate anything that makes it incompatible with holiness. So what is Christ doing with the church? What, what ministry is he conducting in the church? Oh, he is working to sanctify by cleansing through the washing of the water, which is the word. What is Christ doing in our church, in the church, in the body? What is Christ doing? He's sanctifying. Now, if Christ is the head, and his goal is to work in the church to create the church holy, it would only make sense that I would not be over here doing something different than what the head is doing. That, that just seems obvious, right? I mean, it would seem absurd. It would be called rebellion against the sovereign. Would it not? It would. As Christ is working in this, the body should be working in this as well. But now here's the correlation with the husbands. Because as it's saying here, verse 28, so husbands also uh, 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 so husbands ought also to love their wives. It gives a comparison that just as what Christ is doing in the church, the husband has a responsibility to work in the life of the wife. Now it's assuming that there is that relationship with God that he can then minister. I mean, it would be quite hypocritical to be, honey, you really need to get right with the Lord, and he's living all types of sin. I mean, that would just be absurd, wouldn't it? So it's assuming that the husband has the relationship with the Lord to be able to help her. Through which means? Through the word. The word purifies. As we look in the scriptures, we see the character of God. We understand what his demands are for us. And in faith, we start to practice those things. It changes us. No longer are we living on this path with these actions, but we've changed course and now we're living in this path and with these actions. It changes us dramatically through the word. This is not about preferences. Honey, could you not burn the toast so much? I'd really like... No, it's not about preferences. It's about using God's word to change the person, to sanctify them, to make them holy. And it assumes, obviously, that the person has done this to themselves. Now, as we continue looking at this, he goes into a pragmatic aspect of that the husband loves his own body. And the wife is part of his body. To be involved at this level in his wife's life is to help himself. To be engaging in this way, to be sanctifying himself through the word, sanctifying her through the word, is to help himself. He has to do this. And he calls this, this mystery. Now, this mystery is great, as it says uh, in verse um, 32. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church, verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you, he, he gives a, 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 kind of shortens it all, all together, uh, is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Love 
and respect. Now, thinking about this, we want to think about that we need to look to Christ in our marriage. Now, how do we apply this to our lives? It's a, it's a, it's a tremendously difficult passage to apply if we don't understand that God has a plan, a sovereign plan. It's tremendously impossible because you'll say, she doesn't deserve my love. You don't understand what she's done in my life, or you don't understand what he's done. I can't respect him. I can't respect him. I can't submit to him. You don't understand how he acts at home. He dresses up so nicely here, but there at home, you just nobody sees it. And you want to fight against this text. But the only way to apply this text is to understand that God, before you were even thought of by parents, he had a plan. And he has been working this plan out to make you holy and blameless. How he has predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory of grace. He has done this. He has redeemed through the blood of Christ. Uh, through His grace, He has lavished upon us wisdom and insight to give us an inheritance. And He is using this method of looking to Christ to sanctify us. That's what He's doing. How do we apply this? You have to have a firm grasp on chapter 1, 2, and 3. You have to understand that God is working sovereignly uh, for this purpose, to create you holy and blameless. Now, we must also look to Christ in our parent-child relationships. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 6, 1-4. through 4. We must look to Christ in our marriage. We must look to Christ in our parent-child relationships. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Children. Now, the fact that he addresses the children is quite dramatic. You want to talk about countercultural. A letter that was written does not address children. Uh, children in the congregation, it doesn't address. How, how many cases do you see this, that he's addressing children? The, the fact that he addresses the children is impressive. They're moral agents that have responsibilities for their actions. He addresses them. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Now, obviously this is in the Lord, and this requires that, that little uh, restriction. A child that disobeys their parents shows more of their heart condition toward God and not wanting to accept his authority in their life than it does against the parent. A child that dis disobeys their parent shows a disregard for God's authority in their life because God has placed the parent as their authority. It's always counterproductive when the parent says, you have to obey me because I pay the bills around here or because I'm bigger than you. Or it doesn't work because that's not the basis of authority. The basis of authority is that God has placed the parents in authority to those children. And the, the child obeys because they're obeying God. It reflects what's going on in their heart. Now, it, it, uh, it demands, of course, according to verse 14, that they've been taught. 
that, that they have a, a knowledge about God and that they have a knowledge about how to live rightly uh, for the Lord uh, in, in His sight, to, to do what is right in His sight. Uh, obviously, if you have a parent that's not discipling, then the kid's not going to know how they're supposed to be behaving. But he, he addresses them with this responsibility. And, and this, of course, puts a huge responsibility on the parent to be teaching them how to act. Now, the second thing that it does is it presents in verse 4, fathers. So children and fathers. Uh, he, there is a word for mother, as you see in verse 2. But he doesn't say fathers and mothers. He addresses the fathers. The fathers have this responsibility. Obviously, there are situations where there's not a father in the home or there's a father who's not saved and cannot do this. Look at the situation of Timothy with his mom and grandmother who discipled him. But in a Christian home, the father is supposed to have the responsibility of discipling the children. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But... Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That uh, word there, to provoke, is to make angry, to make them angry. Now, who is it uh, that they're not supposed to be making angry? You would think, don't, uh, don't provoke uh, the Lord. But he doesn't say, don't provoke the Lord. Don't make the Lord angry. He doesn't say that. He says, don't provoke the children to be angry. Now, as we look at this, they're supposed to have a certain relationship, which is to bring them up. That word, to bring up, has the idea of, um, of providing guidance, uh, of helping to raise them up, to nourish. Uh, kind of like um, a person who is, uh, has a plant, has, has roses, and they really want to see those roses really bloom. And so you, they're out there, and they're, they're trimming, and they're uh, breaking up the ground, and they're giving it stuff, and they're watering. They're making sure it has enough light. They're making sure it has everything, because what they want to see is that, that rose bush bloom. They want to see it, it, it really grow and have these beautiful flowers. That's the idea of bringing up, is that you're uh, intimately involved in that child's life to, to cause them to, to really flourish. To bloom. Now, as we see that, you, know, you bring them up, and they're to be brought up in two areas. One is discipline. That's the act of, uh, of providing guidance for responsible living. Discipline is the act of providing guidance for responsible living. It, it has to do with training them, and this is the positive aspect of it, training them as to what to do. This is this is how you do this. When you go into a store, you, you do this. When you go to shake someone's hand, you look them in the eye and you, you extend their hand. You don't do it like a little flop thing. You grab their hand and you shake their hand. That's positive instruction. Uh, the other word, instruction, is counsel about avoidance or cessation of improper course of conduct. That second word, so there's, there's two things, you, discipline and instruction. That word instruction has the idea of what to avoid or what to stop, what is improper. Don't, don't do that. Don't, no, we're not going to play soccer in the funeral home. Don't, don't do that. Take the ball outside. You know, you're instructing them as to what to do, what not to do. Now, it's specifically instruction of the Lord. So you can't count, you know, uh, uh, teaching the kid how to play marbles to be also 
instructing them in the Lord. You can't tell them, well, I, I taught them how to drive a, a manual transmission, so I was teaching them. No, this is instruction, uh, discipline and instruction in the Lord. It, it's what the topic is. Now, to apply this to our, our lives, children must obey and honor their parents. I know we live in a society where this is really countercultural, but this is what's being presented, is that this is how children must, must learn. They must learn to obey and to honor their parents. Obeying your parents reflects your faith in God. Obeying and honoring your parents reflects the character of Christ who obeyed his father. Philippians chapter 3, 5 through 8, uh, Jesus obeyed the father. And in that, the children learn how to obey and honor their father. A child must understand God's plan for their life and must understand that God is sovereignly working, that God is sovereign and has put parents in his life or her life to help them grow. A child might argue, well, I have a better way. It does not matter if they have a better way. It reflects in their heart if they're going to be submissive and obey or not. A child that wants to buck every time that the parent tells them something, they're showing their heart. And even if you get your kid to stop doing that, inside their heart they're still mad against what the parent is saying. A child must obey. Now, parents must not provoke their children. Must not provoke their children to anger. Uh, what would cause a child to be angry? I'm not giving an exhaustive list, but rather just two practical points here. If the parent has two standards of holiness, that will aggravate the child. You must live like this, and then the parent goes and lives another way. It, it infuriates kids. It does. They're expected to live at this level of holiness here, which is much higher than the level of holiness for themselves. It's hypocritical. And the child sees that and is angered by it. Now the father might be rather pious and be like, well, he needs to turn that over to the Lord. Paul holds the parent responsible. I'm not making this up. The, Paul says here, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Parents don't do that. What other thing? Well, a second thing that I thought of is a, is a parent who, who never confesses to doing wrong. The parent sins. They come into the house angry. There's the cat. They kick the cat. They're yelling. as oh, They have this burst of anger. And then, and, and then no confession of sin. And if there is a confession of sin, it's like one of those really weak ones. Like, if, if I did something wrong, well, well, if doesn't, it gives a conditional, it puts him on the kid. Parents that never confess to doing wrong irritate the child. It brings wrath. It brings anger. They're made to apologize, but the parent never apologizes for what they do. Now, Parents must also instruct their children. Note that this is not the responsibility of the Christian school. It's really not the responsibility of the church. It's the responsibility of the parent to instruct the kid in how to live. 
what things to do and what things to avoid. It's the parent's responsibility. And it's not about just what they do on the outside. It's reaching their heart. So that their heart, that what's motivating them is in accordance with the Lord. Now the last thing that we see here is that we must look to Christ in the workplace. And we see that in verses 5 through 9. We must look to Christ in our marriage. We must look to Christ in our parent-child relationship. We must look to Christ at the workplace. And Paul gives the sets of instructions of slaves are to be obedient to those who are your masters. And he tells them not just when they're looking, you know, because everybody can do that. You know, here comes the boss and they start working hard and, and sweats just pouring from them and then the boss keeps on walking and then they go sit down and have a coffee or whatever and, and then wait until again the, the boss comes back around. No! It's to do it unto the Lord. Because the Lord is watching. That's, that's what he says in verse 9 when he gives the, the warning to the master's It says, and masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality. There's a fact that Christ is watching. Now, we're forgiven, the believer's forgiven for sin, but he's already told us to redeem the time, to take advantage. We'll be presented one day before the Bema Seat of Christ, And not because of sin will we be judged, but what we did. How we took advantage of time. Whether we took advantage of people. Or or were we taking advantage of, you know, a situation where the boss isn't around and just goofing off. Now, as we see these three things, we're talking about marriage, child, parent-child relationship, and workplace. Both of them, all three of these, are characterized by looking to Christ. How, how is a person supposed to live? Well, Daniel, I've, I've been married for 30 years. I'm an expert at this. <laughs> I've had kids now. They're all grown, and, and I know how to raise grandkids. I've been working all my life. I've been a boss all my life. It's not through your experience. Your experience doesn't qualify you. It's through looking at Christ as the example. In each of these, there's a daily turning, a, a, a present aspect of looking to Christ as to how to have these relationships correct. And unless you look at them, you're not going to. Now, as we look at this, we're to look at Christ to know how to have proper relationships with others. You can't look at Christ if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. He's just a moral teacher. He's not your head. And if today you're here and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you might have a bunch of stories. You might have a bunch of information. But there is no transformation going on in your life. And that's evident by those who live around you. That person must put their faith in Jesus Christ. To trust that that God has provided Christ as the only thing only one who can redeem you out of your sinfulness. There's nothing else. If you are saved, our experience doesn't qualify us to be good husbands or wives or children or parents or employees or bosses. The only thing is to look continually to Christ. 
Now, you can't change last week, can you? Some probably think, I wish I could change other things, you know, more time, a year ago, whatever. But you can't change it. The question is, what will you look at for your example moving forward? What, what will you look to? Will it be to Christ? Will you act in conformity to Christ the head? Or will you still rely on yourself? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I pray now as we have this time of invitation, if there is someone here that's not saved, Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Father, I, I pray that they'll want to talk to somebody that's beside them. Maybe even come forward and talk to me or to an elder. And I pray that they'll today believe in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for them. They'll become submissive to Christ as Lord in their life. Father, I pray for those who are believers uh, that maybe we've been relying on our experience, maybe we've been relying on education, maybe we've been relying on a thousand different other things, but we have not been looking to Christ as our example. I pray, Father, that uh, we'll stop that. We'll repent of that. And we'll gaze intently on Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.